Welcome to Books and Rhymes, the podcast that makes you fall in love with reading whilst flipping the script with a musical twist on your favourite books. I invite guests to pair a book with a song or an album that sparks the same emotional connection. I'm your host, Sarah, a West African in the diaspora with a deep abiding love for the written word. Join me every Monday on a musical journey through the works of new and classic authors. Today's episode is an absolute delight as I had the pleasure of hosting the amazing Namwali Serpel, author of the multi-generational, genre-bending debut novel, The Old Drift, at Waterstones in Gower Street, London. Listen for a chance to win a signed copy of The Old Drift. Don't forget to share this episode on Instagram and Twitter and tag at Books and Rhymes for a ch- for automatic entry. An extended playlist of songs featured in each episode is available on booksandrhymes.com. Subscribe and rate Books and Rhymes on iTunes and your favourite podcast listening platforms. So, Namali, welcome to the live Thank episode you, recording Sarah. of Books and Rhymes. Ooh la la. <laughs> this is what I sound like in real life, by the way, I'm not making it up. <laughs> it's already music to our ears. <laughs> I'm not making it up. Okay, so... I sent Namwali four categories and I asked her to pick a song to go with each category. So we're discussing songs according to those four categories. I'm giving you like the prelude to our conversation. So in, with, in keeping with the theme of books and rhymes, I asked you to pick a book that inspired the old drift. And you pick Cloud Atlas by David Mitchell. And I asked you to pair it with a song. So you... I with said an album. Or, yes, I said a song or an album. And I chose an album. Yes. A lot of people usually go with the song route. I love you. You're an academic. Very ambitious. <laughs> <laughs> you know, give me a homework. I ask for more because it's not enough. Um, so Namwali very, very generously gave us the whole Bjorks album, which is really good. And so I picked the first song from the album as the one we would listen to today, which is called Hunter. The album Why, is homogenic. Homogenic. What did I say? Oh, I didn't. Homogenic. (laughs) (laughs) And the first song is Hunter, which I'm now going to play for your listening pleasure. If travel is searching and home what's been found, I'm not stopping. So that is a song that was picked, which is Hunter by Bjork. Um, Now, why did you pair that song in particular with Atlas? So I chose the album Homogenic for Cloud Atlas because it's one of many of Bjork's albums that includes many different styles of song. And David Mitchell's Cloud Atlas famously includes many different genres, a sea yarn, uh, a... A detective story, a kind of satirical farce, and it also moves into the future, uh, involving a post-apocalyptic world that feels like a return to the natural world. And Bjork's interest in sort of urban and uh, vegetal mixing, I want to say, in in the, in the album really appeals to me, but also I think resonates with some of what David Mitchell's trying to get at. The song Hunter starts the album, and it's very fitting because the beginning of Cloud Atlas, the main character there is Adam Ewing, who is uh, in the Moriori Islands, and he meets a man on the beach who is raking the sand to find 
human teeth, he thinks cannibals' teeth that he's going to sell back in London. So this idea of hunting, rapacity, and the idea of traveling uh, is very much present in the beginning of the novel as well as the album. Speaking of traveling, the old drift begins with, I call it a dragging of, Ken, of um, Livingstone. Mm, you know, I like that. Because, yeah. You, you dragged yeah, him. So yeah. Livingstone is... <laughs> Throw shade right away. Yeah. <laughs> you just, you know, well, you did begin with, you know. I mean, I literally, the first sentence calls him a dead white man. So, yeah. Shade. <laughs> <laughs> so, for those who are not well versed in history and in the way African history is documented, um, Livingstone is seen as an overarching figure okay. in history. And he's seen as one of the, he's, he's one of the people who championed the colonial expansion and is famous for the three C's, Christian, commercialization and civilization. Yes. And so after dragging um, Livingston, you contextualize, well, when I, let's use the right phrase, after situating the introduction, <laughs> after situating the European colonial expansion at the yeah. beginning of the novel, you then introduce us to the key character yes. who then set who then more or less starts a snowball of events which we then experience as the reader and this person's name is peter clark and it's per percy, percy, clark. percy clark and it spells yeah. clark in different ways in well he's things. he's he has the percy clark without the what he calls the aristocratic e at the end of his name because he the, Percy was also a historical figure. He wrote a book called Autobiography of an Old Drifter about the Old Drift, which was a settlement on the banks of the Zambezi River in the late 19th century. And he meets when he's there a man from Cambridgeshire as well. They both came from uh, Cambridge town. And that man is also named Clark, but he's Mopane Clark, named after the uh, Mopani tree because he he stood so tall and, and stiff and he has the aristocratic E and Percy's very annoyed by this that he's come all the way to the middle of Africa to make his fortunes as a photographer having been kicked out of a lab at Trinity College in Cambridge and he meets this man who's already laid claim to this land and is he already has a post named after him and he's developed these little hotels and, and he became a, quite a serious uh, settler figure in Livingston town. Uh, so yeah, Percy, Percy pitches up and tries to make his fortunes in all these different ways, but keeps failing. So it's, it's as though the class politics of England have followed him all the way to Zambia or to Northern Rhodesia at the time. I, I said when I read the novel, I felt like you lull the reader into a sense of security, and then you powwow them. Um, <laughs> by powwow, I mean you deliver like a punch mm. that alerts the reader into the reality of, okay, I'm following these people's lives, mm. but then something always comes out of the ordinary, and, I, and I, I, mm. I'm loath to give away spoilers, so that's why I'm, all, I'm speaking around the, the matter. Cloud Atlas is not a historical novel. He did some historical research as well, though, with, about the the colonial settlement of the Moriori Islands. So he also starts in history and then moves to the future. Mm. So mm -hmm. my question was, what mm. is connection? What is direct connection between both novels? Like, what is it about that that made you think, oh, um, Cloud Atlas, Zambia, let's go. Uh, <laughs> well, it, it didn't happen in that order. <laughs> Nothing about this book <laughs> happened in order. I started it when I was 20 years old in university and 
so this was in the year 2000, so before Cloud Atlas had come out. But when I conceived the novel, I already had a sense that it was going to have multiple genres. And sometimes I say it's just because of the pun of genre and generation, but the genres always mapped onto the different generations. So the grandmothers were going to have this magical realist element. The mothers were going to have this social realism and the grandchildren were going to have this sci-fi quality to them, or at least scientific quality to them when I first started. And, um, when I when I started writing the, the the novel, it was I was in a class. I brought in my excerpt, you know, nervously handed it around, and everyone was confused. They're like, "Well, this this character cries all the time. She cries endlessly. She doesn't stop crying for years and years." But her daughter's just regular. Is she going to be magical too? And I was like, "No, she's not. She's 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 regular." <laughs> and um, and I, there was a lot of confusion about my desire to have multiple genres within one family even. And then five years later, Cloud Atlas came out. And I was like, this is fantastic. (laughs) Someone is doing what I've been wanting to do and is giving me at least some kind of template. Um, I could also see what some of the obstacles to doing what he did would be for the reader because I could read all the reviews on Amazon and see where people stopped and and literally you know certain decisions that got made you know the end of my of my book cuts off sort of mid-sentence and there's there's a the first chapter of Cloud Atlas cuts off mid-sentence but he cut off mid-sentence at the end of a page and so everyone thought that it was a misprint and so they had to put a, a little notification that this is intentional. So even decisions like that, well, I thought, well, okay, I'm gonna I'm gonna cut off mid page so people know it's intentional. You know, things like yeah. that. I could learn from his example. So it became a real inspiration. But after the fact, fabulous. I'm tempted. I should go to the next section, but I can't help asking you this yeah. question. Seeing as um, you mentioned that you handed out except of the book of the manuscript, you know, to people to read and naturally class assignments at that point. I wasn't thinking of them as a novel, but yes. Yeah. But you know, naturally we are naturally resistant to the unknown. Yes. And my question is when you submitted the manuscript to the people you submitted it to, (laughs) (laughs) my editor (laughs) in the audience, (laughs) (laughs) What was the initial response to it and how difficult I was it? Did you face any resistance? Like, did you have to do a lot of convincing for people to believe in the novel and commission not, it? And not as a multi-genre work. There was never a sense that I needed to get rid, one of, get rid of one of the genres or even get rid of one of the generations because it's very big now, but it was even bigger, if you can imagine. And... <laughs> There was a point where I said, well, when I submitted the full manuscript, I said, well, if you think we should just make this a book about the mothers and the children or about the grandmothers and the mothers, just let me know. And there was never a sense that I could cut out an entire generation or an entire genre. The the thing that did happen with my wonderful readers um, was I got feedback on which aspects of the genres I was playing with were wearing on the... uh, on the reader a bit much. So the magical realist uh, elements of the novel, I wrote intentionally in a very Baroque, very dense, very kind of heavily, almost uh, sickeningly rich style intentionally because I wanted to parody to a certain extent the genres that I was playing with. 
but there was, I gave two versions of a single chapter to my editors and they both said, well, let's take the slightly cleaner one. So it's a little less cloying. And with the science fiction parts of, of the novel, uh, getting a sense of when I was giving the reader too much scientific information, which is fascinating to me, but most readers just don't care, you know. So um, that sort of thing was was very helpful. So I was getting... The response I got about the genres of the book had, had much more to do with clarifying my, my intention than trying to do away with it altogether. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Spring is my favorite time to start a new workout routine. With the weather warming up, it feels easier to get into the rhythm of things. Whether you have 20 minutes or an hour for a Pilates class or outdoor guided walk, Peloton has everything you need to help you get going. Get a head start on summer with Peloton at OnePeloton.com. Speaking of science intention and magical realism, mm. the old drift is narrated that you have an omnipresent Greek chorus, yes. which constitutes of mosquitoes. A swarm of mosquitoes, yes. yes. It's like, and on top of everything. <laughs> <laughs> the first line is I, I would actually recommend you read the first line out to yourself when you get the book. It is an experience. <laughs> um, so speaking of mosquitoes and pairing it with Bjork, mm. because I asked you to pair to um, pick a song that is evocative of the old drift. Mm -hmm. And the song you picked is Yoga yes. by Bjork. So Yoga is spelled the Scandinavian way, J-O-G-A. Mm -hmm. um, and I googled what homogenic, which is what the album Yoke's album is called. I googled what it means because, you know, we're, we're very, um, we pay attention to details. Yes. And the dictionary said that homogenic is having only one alternative form or one allele, a gene or genes. And the example is the plagues attacks relatively homogenic populations. <laughs> so speaking of mosquitoes. That's perfect. <laughs> I love when this happens. Yeah, <laughs> synchronicity. I love so it. Wonderful. Well, I yeah. know, right? Um, it's just, yeah, so it was meant to be. Mosquitoes yeah. and the old drift were meant to be. So the song you picked is Yoga by Bjork, which I'm now going to play for, once again, your listening pleasure. Emotional landscapes They pass on me The little gets out And you push me up to this state of Yoga by Bjork. Um, so why this song? Why is it the song, the soundtrack, the one song that is evocative of the old drift? I have to say, I have to thank you for this assignment, which is, you know, build a soundtrack for your book because it didn't even occur to me to do that. And there were three different ways that I put together the songs. 
songs I was listening to when I was writing the book, which I've been writing off and on for 20 years and since I was 20, you know, so Bjork, obviously. Um, songs that appear in the book in, that I actually cite and then songs that inspire the book, that songs that feel resonant in the way I was just describing Hunter and the Cloud Atlas chapter. And this song is sort of all three. I don't cite exactly this um, this the lyrics of this song, but I do cite the lyrics of a Bjork song in the middle of a description of a of a compound in Lusaka, um, which those of you who are Bjork fans, look out for it <laughs> on page, you know, 100 and whatever. Uh, but so listening to the song, the, the sweep of it, it's this very epic song. And the idea of emotional landscapes, really, that's one of the, the lyrics that we just heard, really appealed to me because the, song, the, the novel is very much about human emotion, but it's also about the kind of rifts and valleys and mountains of human emotion, the highs and the lows. It's not a placid, kind of even-keeled book at all. But it also, the, the song begins, all these accidents follow the dots. Coincidence makes sense only with you. And the book is about error. It's about accident. It's about the way that lives coincide by accident. And this sets off a kind of butterfly effect or mosquito effect <laughs> that has wreaks large consequence. And so this idea of accident and also follow the dots sounds to me like following the dots of the swarm on the on the, my beautiful cover. So it's just, it works perfectly. And then, you know, when she builds to this chorus, she's, you know, belting out this line, this state of emergency. She's talking about emotional landscapes and she says a state of emergency. So part of it is emotional, that sense of urgency you have when you fall in love. There's a lot of love in this book and heartbreak. But also the end of the novel is a political revolution, a failed political revolution, but this idea that we're in a state of emergency and something must change, there's a political aspect to that that resonates really beautifully, I think, between that song and, and what I was trying to do in the book. Um, so, speaking of politics, mm. you're going to get me in trouble. No, well, no, I wasn't. No, <laughs> I was going to go a different route okay. politically. Sounds good. Um, in Coloso, in Coloso, yeah. in Coloso, mm -hmm. he is. There is a character in the book called Coloso. My lord, have mercy on our souls. Um, <laughs> If you think the way Namwali has been explaining the book, it's the way the book sort of does its ridges and tenors and it, it just, mm. the book flows. Uncoloso is just as complicated and textured as the novel. I think it's a representation mm. of, the, if you want someone who yeah. encapsulates the spirit of the, spirit the novel, of the novel that's Uncoloso. Yes. Um, and you, I, I'm sure you're going to guess what I, I'm psychic, you know. Oh, okay. <laughs> I don't, there's so many directions you can go with this man, so I don't know. The Zambian Space Project. Yes. Um, mm -hmm. So in Colosso, um, so the story begins, the author begins pre-colonization. You take us through the whole political, um, the political uh, new permutations of, yeah. of, of, um, of Zambia, even up to the future, an imagined future. Yes. But Nkoloso to me was the first introduction to the genius, the scientific genius mm -hmm. of the African mind. Mm -hmm. And so Nkoloso took it upon himself to start the African space program. Yes. 
why did you feel the need to include that? And what is the African Space Program? Well, so Zam- Zambian, yes, Zambian space, very specifically space Zambian. Yes. Um, so Edward Mukuka and Coloso started the Zambian Space Program on the very eve of independence. So we, we got independence from the British in 1964. So it's 63-64. He starts the space program. This is a historical figure. One of my favorite things about this book is that the most outlandish things are all the real ones. <laughs> um, the things I invented were pretty tame in comparison. <laughs> so I learned about Coloso after, you know, I'd been writing the book off and on for many years. I learned about him in December 2012 or so. And uh, a friend sent me a video to a video um, a, a, a trailer for a photography exhibit called the Afronauts, and it's this Spanish photographer Cristina de Medel had taken up this historical story and kind of opened it up for the world to to hear more about. So I started digging and doing archival research, and you know the, in the interviews, and you can see this on YouTube. There's footage of him. And he was rolling his space cadets downhill in empty oil drums. He was swinging them from ropes to simulate anti-gravity conditions. He had, uh, I think, 12 cadets. The, the numbers are disputed, but one of them absolutely for sure was female. And his star astronaut was a woman named Martha Mwamba, who was raising 12 cats to be released one by one when she got to Mars to make sure that the planet was habitable. I mean, this, and so, you know, people from the West came out, but this was announced in Time Magazine. So Time Magazine is like, you know, Northern Rhodesia has now become the new nation of Zambia. The last paragraph was about Nkolosa. And they have a space program with Martha and the 12 cats and the... I think they even call her, and this is very typical of the time, a curvaceous 16-year-old <laughs> named Martha Mwamba. It was very, it's very odd. But all the Western uh, reportage about the space program basically considered him a lunatic, a fool. Um, this, was, this was some kind of joke, and no one really understood what it was about. As I started digging, I learned more and more about his history. And he was a freedom fighter. He had fought for the British during World War II. He'd gone to Burma. He always claimed that his desire to go to the moon was when he took his first uh, flight. And he asked the pilot, can I uh, step outside to walk on the clouds? And the pilot said no. And he was like, well, I'm going to do it someday. (laughs) Um, But when he came back from the war, he was very disillusioned. I mean, I think he, like many people, I think a lot of African-American soldiers as well had the same experience. They fight for their country. They come back to their country and they're told that they're second-class citizens. So he tried to start a school, but that was not allowed. So his school was shut down. He kind of bounced around. And then he got involved in politics. And he became a freedom fighter. And what I learned was that he actually was probably tortured by the British when they imprisoned him uh, for insurrectionary activity. And, you know, some people say that the torture is the reason he lost his mind. And that's why he started the space program. Other people say the space program was actually uh, a kind of disguise for covert guerrilla activity, that he was still acting as a revolutionary on behalf of all the countries around Zambia that had yet to achieve independence. Mm. So I decided I wanted to fictionalize him, but I also decided I was very interested in Martha Mwamba, his one female space cadet. Wow. Sorry, I'm speechless. (laughs) It rarely happens. Um, Yeah. So Martha Mwamba. Mm -hmm. On one hand, she's, as you said, she's a historical figure and she's a very strong character yeah. until something happens yeah. in the book. 
And you alluded to the crying woman, the woman who was crying perpetually. Yes. So in, I mean, am I giving anything away? I'm not giving anything away. So there's a woman who cried in the book. Um, (laughs) (laughs) You don't know why she's crying. So (laughs) read on. That's a (laughs) non-spoiler. But you don't know why she's crying. So my question is, on one hand, you introduce her to the reader as this person who is super intelligent because yes. you're, you, you know, she's introduced as a young child who is sent to school as a way of just keeping company, her siblings company or something. Mm-hmm. And then um, she's quiet for a very long time until she pipes up when a young person, the teacher, Uncle Oso, asks one of the boys because only boys were educated at the time. Um, so she pipes up when one of the boys could not answer a question mm-hmm. and then everyone is surprised because she doesn't speak and this is the first time you hear her speak in the novel. Mm-hmm. And so she then becomes a star pupil mm-hmm. and then all of a sudden she becomes a dam, a crying dam. Mm-hmm. What is that? Why was it important to juxtapose that strength and what is seemingly accepted as weakness, which is crying? Mm. So... Martha is one of my favorite characters in the novel because I got to trace her from the age of four or five, basically, to becoming what gets called a go-go of the revolution. She becomes a a grandmother by the end of the book. And the story of her coming into being feels always felt more to me like I was discovering someone who actually existed, even before I knew who Martha Mwamba was. So I had this character in 2000, who was crying all the time. And I knew that she was crying because she was heartbroken. And I knew that she had been knocked up and left by the man who had knocked her up. And then I was doing research on the space program to write a nonfiction essay, a historical nonfiction essay that was published in The New Yorker after about two years of research. And I was mapping the outline of the two projects around the same time. And I realized Martha Mwamba was 16 and pregnant when she got kicked out of the space program. And my character is a teenager who's pregnant and is heartbroken. I was like, oh, it's the same person. Okay, this helps. And it's like rearranged everything. But then it was wonderful because then I got to know who Martha was as a younger person, which I'd never really conceived. I'd imagined her as a a teenager and as a woman and as a go-go, but I'd never... understood what she was like as a child. And in interviewing people about the historical Martha Mwamba, I learned that she was the brightest cadet. I learned that she was from the same part of the country as in Coloso. And I learned that um, that in interviews, she had this tick of saying, whenever they would ask her, how do you feel about being the first woman to go to Mars? How do you feel about being the only female you know, Zambian astronaut? She would always say, it is a bit worrisome, <laughs> which I just love. But also that they were like, she's always laughing and always smiling behind her hand. And so I was like, this is really interesting to me because before her heartbreak, before she got pregnant, she was the laughing girl. And then I was like, and then she became the crying woman. And it just, for me, that just immediately gave me a sense of how a life event can shift who you are to other people. And when she eventually comes out of her crying, which I won't spoil why, I always knew that was going to happen. And I always knew why it was going to happen. But it allowed me to see how you can, you can change even then when you're a grandmother. Even then, you, you're not stuck, you know, with the emotional trauma that you believe yourself to have had. (laughs) 
<laughs> I, you know, there's a song that I wanted us to play about this. <laughs> but no, I don't know if we have it. But, but so there's a band, a Zamrock band called Witch, which stands for We Intend to Cause Havoc. I love it. And the first song on one of their albums is Black Tears. And so I was, re I was like, this is perfect because the, the man that Martha falls in love with, Godfrey, uh, thinks of himself as, as, as a Zamrock <laughs> musician. He's always playing guitar and wanting to go see James Brown and all that stuff. So it was a perfect, perfect song. There. That's one of the questions I wanted to ask you because some of the songs you selected and there is a playlist to the whole book and this conversation which will be available. Ah once um, the podcast is out so yeah, moving yeah. away from the old drift into real mm -hmm. life um, because the old drift is about migration one-way migration and you're, stu you're studying how people who migrate to Zambia yes. how they how they sort of become immersed in Zambia and how Zambia shifts according yes. to the people who are there and now you were born in Zambia and you migrated to America yes so how and seeing that Zambian songs are not some songs that yeah. I want to listen to that you have referenced are not available on Spotify. Mm. I'm just trying to make connections between both. Um, so, mm. <laughs> so how can you speak on that experience, the yeah. traveling out experience whilst you're writing in mm. to Zambia? Yeah, I mean, I think it's a very odd position to be in as a Zambian immigrant in the U.S., newly as a U.S. citizen. I became a citizen right after, you know, who was elected because I was scared. <laughs> I was like, they're going to kick me out. <laughs> um, although I have to say traveling has become a lot easier with an American passport. And this is one of the things that you're bringing up, the sorts mm -hmm. of rights and privileges that you have when you're immigrating or migrating if you're an emigrant <laughs> to other, other parts of the world yeah. versus when you're going in the other direction. But I grew up in a, in a multicultural, immigrant-full-filled <laughs> Lusaka. You know, I grew up, my father was an immigrant from England to Zambia in the 60s. He met my mother there. They had me and my sisters. And I went to an Indian school. There was, you know, always a, an Indian part of town, Kamwala. There was an Italian school. There just was a sense of lots of cultures mixing and mingling in, in Lusaka in a way that felt very different from the binary logic when I got to the U.S. of you either belong or you don't. You're either black or you're white. There's, there was no room for nuance. Um, and for this kind of idea of cultural cultural mixing. So when I was writing the novel, I really wanted to explore that hybridity at, at the core of my upbringing, which is not, I should say, is not characteristic necessarily of every Zambian's experience, you know, depending on where you're from. But it's, it's very, to me, it's like a, a cosmopolitan city. Lusaka is a city that has had that utopian ideal, especially in the 60s, of being a place where anybody could come and settle and mingle and you know it it just I I that spirit is very much still with the the people of my parents' generation when you talk to them. They still feel that nostalgia for Lusaka of the 60s and 70s. I wanted to ask you about so um before publishing The Old Drift, yes. you the book was it it appeared in short story forms mm. across different platforms. And one of the short story that I wanted to ask you about is your 2010 shortlisted story for the Kane Prize, yes. which is Muzungu. Yes. And Muzungu is the story of, like you were saying, about a multiracial 
Zambia. Yeah. It's about a young girl who discovers that she's white um, through her parents' house helps who are black. Yes. And they use the term Muzungu, in, in my opinion, in a pejorative way. And so she mm. didn't receive it very well. And she was quite shocked mm. that she's white. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Could you speak on that? On, on yeah. I, I mean, when, sorry, because when yeah. I, when I read it, I thought, oh, okay, interesting. But then I thought to myself, well, your granddad's white, you know, yeah. <laughs> your mom's white. So how can you not see yourself as white? That whole conversation around color blindness and how you see yourself versus how the world sees you Mm -hmm. and also as um, a person myself was born in Nigeria living in Nigeria as Sarah yeah and then coming over to the UK like you were saying and then turn becoming black in the UK but not immediately I arrived in the UK but it was when I was going to university when you're ticking the boxes so I became automatically black through box ticking Yes. Whereas she became white through a person telling her that you're white. Yes. So could you speak about that um, racialization, mm-hmm. number one, and also your perception of the racial landscape in Zambia, given the history you've taken the readers on through this book? Yeah. So I very much uh, wanted to flip our understanding of that racial recognition scene, which very often in literature is a person of color, a black person, learning that they're black. So in, especially in African-American literature, there's all of these kind of originary scenes. Du Bois uh, hits, gives a Valentine's Day card to a girl in his school and is refused. And that's when he realizes, oh, I'm different from him, I'm, I'm black. And it's as a child, right? And so, I th- and I do think that there is, I think this does happen more when you are a minority in a society that you are, you come into this racial recognition young, at a, at a young age. And the privilege for the majority is to just be Sarah, to just be a person, right? My father told me a story uh, of going to a village in the eastern part of Zambia in Chipata. And many of the kids in the village had never seen a white person before. And so he, he told me a story of um, some of the mothers jokingly trying to scare the kids with him and being like, you know, and kind of playing this game and, and how, you know, he had never experienced that. He'd never been called out as white. And he, I mean, he still, I think, had trouble recognizing himself as different from Zambians after being there for so long. He would sometimes forget that he wasn't black. It was, it's quite, it's quite amusing. Um, <laughs> We'd go to a, a, a festival in Baltimore and he'd be like, why is everyone staring at me? I'm like, you're the only white person here. How do you not see that? Uh, it's, quite, it's quite sweet when you think about it. But when he told me that story, I, I thought I wanted to include in, um, in writing this piece, which I, I knew was part of the novel because I knew that the mother of this young girl was Sibila, this Italian woman I'd already written about. But I wrote it as a kind of self-contained story about this moment of, of racialization. And I wanted to, to flip it to see what is it like for a white person to have this understanding. The word muzungu, I don't, I don't necessarily think of it as, an, as a racial epithet partly because there's no power behind it, right? Like I think of racism as structural. It's not just language. It's like who has power and who's saying what to whom. But also because Muzungu doesn't mean white person. It means a person who wanders around in circles until they get lost. (laughs) 
like etymologically, it comes from zunguluka, zungusha, these, these words that indicate wandering around and getting dizzy and yeah. And so I, I say in the novel, you know, uh, <laughs> muzungu, which describes not a skin color, but a yeah. tendency. Yeah. 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 <laughs> That's one of Ella's favorite lines. <laughs> I'm sorry. No, no. It's the wandering around in circles yeah. that really got me. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> no, it's very accurate. <laughs> but yeah. it's also one of the, re I wanted to, to kind of re-script re, re the story of colonialism. Mm. Uh, you know, I start the novel with a dead white man wandered around and got lost because that's what Livingston did. Yeah. He got lost. And he, everyone's like, oh, he was searching for the, the source of the Nile. It's like, you know, he just got lost looking in the wrong place for the source of the Nile, which it turns out there's two sources and they're really far away from Zambia. So, and so I, I, I wanted to reconscript this idea of a single teleology, a, a goal-oriented expedition and, and give a sense of the arbitrariness of the way this, this settling of, of Africa happened. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare tri-term medical plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare tri-term medical plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. And I'm going, you pick the song that you aligned with Muzungu is called Chakolwa. Yes. <laughs> Which means drunkard. <laughs> because, <By> <laughs> because the young girl's father is a drunkard. Yeah. And the gardener is singing this song, sort of. Yeah, shade, right? In the backdrop. Yeah. By Larry Maluma. <laughs> Even the song itself sounds quite, it, it's, it's quite atmospheric. Yeah, of that time for sure, yeah. yeah. 80s, 
<laughs> very early 80s and yeah no i mean this is a song that we all know very well and it's it's a, a folk song i guess um larry actually moved to australia for for some time and and uh, but i think he's re-releasing an album which is the remastered versions of of these songs from this album that he released um you're now going to read an excerpt from the old Rift. yes yes So we've been talking about the Italian branch of the family, but this is from what in Zambia we call the colored, the colored branch. So colored doesn't have the connotation that it does in the States or maybe in the UK as well. It means mixed race. And the, the colored community is quite strong. There's a lot of colored people who only marry colored people who then have colored kids and you know, lots of green eyes and blonde hair on people with my skin color. It's very much a, a community. And this is actually about a mixed-race Zimbabwean woman named Tandiwe, who is about to meet uh, one of the characters from the Zambian side. And she is working as a an air hostess, at the time it was just called a stewardess. And yeah, I'm just going to read just a, a little bit Okay, I'm actually going to start from a little bit earlier. So I'll read for about four minutes. Ding. A softer bell. Someone had pressed the call button. Still strapped in, Brenda turned to peer through the curtains, then unbuckled and jumped up. I'll get it, she said peppily, her curvy body wobbling rapidly down the aisle. Tandiwe unbuckled and stood and peeked out, scanning the ceiling for the red nub. It was seat 23C again. Brenda was already leaning over, smiling and tossing her hair weave. Tandy rolled her eyes. It's a bit much, she snogged internally, the age difference alone. Real Brenda glanced at her and Tandy ducked behind the curtain. After a moment, she peeped out. Damn, spotted. Brenda beckoned her. They walked towards each other in the aisle, Brenda looking slumped even under her shoulder pads. He wants you, of course, Brenda clucked over her shoulder as they turned sideways to pass, bum to bum. The of course was about skin color. Tandy and the young man at 23C were both colored. Tandy frowned until she reached his seat. Then she turned and smiled with closed lips. Can I help you, sir? Yeah, he said, staring at Tandy's breasts as if willing her uniform to split open. His smile faltered as he took in her posture. He cleared his throat. <clears throat> Are you Zimbabwean? Yes, she said, wondering if he was. His tackies looked expensive. I'm just wondering if you've had passport problems, Tandy sighed. Not this again. The man across the aisle caught her eye and shook his head. Sorry, sir, Tandy said to the young man, but we cannot advise. She saw the kitchenette curtains open at the end of the aisle. Brenda appeared, waving and pointing grumpily at her watch. It was time to clear the trays. You can address any questions about your passport at immigration in Lusaka. Um, actually, he motioned her closer. She leaned in cautiously. His whiskey breath was sweet and stringent, sugar cubes strung on a line of acid. I just wanted to tune you for a beat. Can I get your digits? I'm sorry, sir. I, she shook her head stiffly. Yeah, yeah, no worries, he said, exaggerating his accent. It's cool, it's cool. Tandy smiled with closed lips and stood up straight. Just as she stepped back toward the kitchenette, she felt it, a hand cupping her bum. 
It could have come from either side of the aisle. Tandy paused, staring at Brenda's irritable face framed by the pleated curtains. Tandy kept walking. She was used to this sort of incidental touch, the brushes she chose to brush off. She was 19 years old, but she had looked like this from the age of 13. She was well-trained by now to unsee any look, unfeel any touch, if it meant keeping her job. Tandy had dreamt of becoming a Zambia Airways stewardess ever since she first saw that flying chair ad on TV as a girl. The orange Z in the logo that reclined into an airline seat that zipped a contented white man around the world while a graceful black woman materialized like an apparition and served him a glass of whiskey and a plate of fine cuisine. An infectious, optimistic jingle played at the end. Zambia Airways, we're getting better in every way. We're getting better every day. What elegance, young Tandy had thought. What adventure. I want to sing like you. <laughs> I was trying to ham it up because it's so cheesy. It's like, ding, 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 ding. I should have given you the date of, of when this is. I think it's from uh, the, the, the date of, the, of that chapter. Uh, I think it's from 1980 something. But anyway. Um, when I read this bit, thank you for, for highlighting this, but when I read this bit, I, bit in the novel, I thought, the sheer sexism of it all. <laughs> you There's know? a lot of that, yeah. It's, yeah, but this yeah. was just like, you know, I mean, if you're reading it and it's situated in the past, it's like, okay, that's fine. But the 80s, that's like, you know, quite recent. And it's yeah. still happening now, yeah. you know? And a lot of, and, and Tandy's experience is... It, it's it's reminiscent of a lot of women's experience in the book where, um, you know, men are, on one hand, that duality of ex existence, mm -hmm. you know, where you're obsessed on the inside, you're having to contain, Tani's having to contain how she really feels on the inside yeah. when she faces, um, when she's dealing with um, the sexual assault, let's call it spade a spade, mm. um, you know, from Lee. Well, it's not. It's, it's not Lee. Well, he claims it's the guy across the aisle. I mean, it could have been Dr. Bernard Peary. That's the name of the guy across the aisle. So, so the, the man in 23C is a young man named Lee who is an, a doctor, she finds mm. out soon in a kind of emergency situation. And their running joke is mm. that it wasn't him, that it was the guy across the aisle. I'm raising my eyes because we've heard this story <laughs> too many times Well, also before. Lee is a philanderer, so it's true. Well, yeah. Mm, yeah. you know, I'm, I'm, yeah, I'm judging Lee from yeah. London yeah. in 2000 <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 2019. Um, <laughs> you know, um, yeah, but the, the, the point I wanted to raise was about this public performance of, and the, yeah, of a public performance it, of yeah, having yeah. holding it in together of public performance of perfection mm. you know um having to bottle things up and this is it is indicative of tandyway's oh, narrative sure. the, her yeah. character arc yeah. you know um and when you follow her you find that there's a reveal somewhere along the novel yeah. which takes me on to the next segment which is the sack mm. so the sack is namali's short story which was short which one became <laughs> prize 2015 yes thank you 
<laughs> she won it. She won it. The reason why this is Shockingly. remarkable. No, the reason why this is remarkable was the Kane Prize. The, the prize is ten thousand pounds. You knew this was coming. Um, I keep saying you knew this was coming, but you know I couldn't not. I can't not ask this question. So the prize for the Kane Prize is ten thousand pounds, and there are five shortlisted um, writers every year. Nana Mwali did something groundbreaking in splitting the reward, the prize, with her five other shortlisted authors. <laughs> I'm gonna I was gonna ask why <laughs> no that's a, it's a good question yeah I've already asked why so you might as well answer it yeah <laughs> you know. well so there are different answers to that depending on the context one is I have a job I had a job so I didn't need the money so I, I keep saying to you know future cane listers don't take me as an example. I, you know, I have the privilege of having had a job as a professor at UC Berkeley since 2008. So I could afford to, to make this move, to, to um, make this gesture. And, the, uh, you know, speaking of gender, a lot of people have assumed that it comes out of some sense of generosity. So, of course, there are a lot of appeals for philanthropic donations to me following this. And I was like, no. <laughs> it was not a donation to my fellow shortlisters, but it was a feeling that in the lead up to the the award ceremony, we had all these events in bookstores like this in uh, at Africa Rights, and we'd have these wonderful conversations with each other, the the shortlisted writers, and we felt like a real community. And we'd have all this banter, we'd exchange ideas and thoughts, and I'm still very close friends with one of my fellow shortlisters, Fatima Kola, and. Then someone would come along and say, so which one of you is going to win? Or they would say, uh, I'm betting on your story. And it just would, the pallor would, fall, you know, the pole would fall over us and we'd be like, oh, this again. <laughs> and it, you, you know, it made us feel like racehorses or something. And I was like, this is such an odd way to think about this prize, which should be an honor for everybody. All of us should feel honored. And instead it was feeling like a competition. And I felt like writing is not a competition. And um, the only gesture I could make was to split the prize. I tried to get everybody to agree. It, if you, it, whoever wins, we're going to split the prize. And they were all like, ah, no, I don't. <laughs> <laughs> In principle, maybe, but you know. And I was like, we'll do the Hunger Games symbol and, and we'll all get up on stage. And the only thing that they would agree to is that we would all get up on, on stage. Um, and, and when I won, much to my surprise, I didn't think I was going to win. And I, it, the, hand, the hand was not tipped as to who was going to win. Usually there's some sort of murmuring in the room before it happens. It was a complete shock. And I, I remember just thinking, remember to say thank you. Remember to, <laughs> to have everyone come up to the stage and remember to split the prize. Mm. And my, my speech was so short because of that, that there was this kind of awkward pause after I finished. And then everyone was like, okay, <laughs> I guess we're supposed to applaud this. Um, but it was, it was supposed to be a statement about the politics of these prizes, uh, which... Uh, I just have a really oddly, I want to say, free market capitalism flavor to them um, that didn't sit with me as a born and bred socialist from Zambia. And I agree with you. Um, but now I'm like, I hope I don't win any more prizes. <laughs> 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 I don't have to make this decision again. <laughs> And the song that is evocative of the sack is Teclo by PJ Harvey.
Very good at knowing exactly when to stop. I love it. Should be a DJ. <laughs> Don't give me ideas. <laughs> <laughs> that song, having read the sack, that song is so perfect, mm. especially the beginning, how you feel like, okay, what's going on? Yeah. Um, you're waiting for something to happen. And you're just, yeah, it's very surreal. Um, so when reading the sack, I felt like I was following this story and having read the old drift, I understand the sack better. Yeah. Read the old drift so you can understand the sack better. <laughs> well, people were like, the story is so confusing. And I was like, well, I wrote a 500 page novel to explain it because <laughs> it comes at the very end, uh, technically. Yeah. So why this song? So the sack is a very stark story for me uh, tonally and it's the characters are it's a very limited cast of characters and there's this sense of impending doom and you know the song starts long goes the night longer the days and one of the themes of the sack is a series of dreams that are moving backwards um, that are taking a man closer and closer to a portent about his own death and the the chorus of the song, you know, um, uh, or, or actually, I think it's another lyric that we heard. Um, Teklo, your death will send me to my grave. So the idea that your death is tied up with the death of another is also very key to the relationship between the men in in the sack. And yeah, and I just I think the the starkness really, I, you know, if you compare it to the lushness of that Bjork song that we began with, that's the old drift, right? It's very lush and full of emotion, emotional landscapes. Whereas the sack is is when everything has been stripped down. I remember when I was pitching the book to to Poppy, I was describing a vortex of this kind of thing that would swirl and swirl and swirl until you came down to these three characters, this love triangle, and the sack is the future even of that love triangle. So it's even more stark. It's just the two men who are left. And so I really, I think that the song captures that stripping away. So Mizungu is included in the old rift. Yes. It's a, a character's story in the old rift. Yeah. Now the sack is not yeah. included in the old rift, even though it is definitely part about of the, same the old story. rift. Yes. Yeah. Um, why is that? So the editorial decision on that was very much a, a we all came to this as a, in a in a kind of group conversation that the the energy and the song of the old drift, which ends in a, now in a kind of crescendo, um, that the sack was just tonally too different, and it 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 kind of uh, left the reader with this kind of eerie distilled feeling when I wanted people to feel this momentum to a revolution really and one of my favorite um, things that readers have told me readers that I love and strangers have told me is that when they finish the book they want to keep reading it and I think that sense of momentum really comes from the fact that we didn't end with this stark very sad dark ending but I like to think of it I think William Faulkner had some stories that were connected to his novels but were not part of his novel so um, that evening sun go down is a short story that has the same characters from the sound and the fury uh, I like the idea of the sack being a kind of floating epilogue 
to to the novel. And there's a floating prologue as well, which is in this new volume, New Daughters of Africa, which is called The Living and the Dead, uh, which is a reference to, to James Joyce, of course, but is about David Livingston. And, and originally was the beginning of The Old Drift. So we took away these two dark, stark bookends, but they're still floating around in the world for, for those who are interested. They're like footnotes. And I asked you to pair to for readers who love the old drift and the old drift and who enjoyed the theme of the old drift. I asked you to pick a book for them to read, and you picked Chintu by Macumbi's Chintu. And Chintu is spelled Chintu is spelled K I N T U. Um, you picked this book and you paired it with oh, one of my favorite artists. Tracy Chapman. <laughs> I'm an old soul. And the song is called Crossroads. Was the, uh, the whole album I was thinking, but yeah, that works, yeah. So, two albums you're getting. Ooh la la. <laughs> the song is called Crossroads, and I'm going to play it for your listening pleasure. All you folks that you own my life You never made me sacrifice Demons air on my trail Standing at the crossroads of a hill I look to the left, I look to the right <laughs> Love her! So, <clears throat> you know, first of all, why did you choose to pair Crossroads the album with Chintu? I think the energy of that novel for me is very much has this rhythm to it right this this kind of momentum to it everyone says that chintu even though it's, it's also very thick is is a page turner you know you just keep wanting to read it so that sense of of rhythm um was very much on my mind and also the idea of crossroads the idea at you know the 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 kind of beginning of the novel and this comes in every once in a while and it's about an incident that's happening in the in the present moment is about a man who um is basically attacked in the street for being a thief right and so you know when she says hands are grabbing me on every side that that hit me but also the the originary incident the curse that uh, haunts the the clan uh, starting in i think i want to say 17th century Uganda um, is about is about when you are at these crossroads. They're on. They're literally traveling through. Um, uh, they're traveling to the kingdom, and they they they're stopped on the way. And this horrible incident happens, and it's it becomes a curse that follows his family over centuries. And so, thinking about crossroads as an important aspect of of that novel in a plot way was also important there's also there's some really beautiful love songs and some really beautiful songs about being poor on that album and makumbi manages to capture really harrowing uh, details about what it is to be poor in uganda there's a, a a young woman who um is living in a kind of hodgepodge settlement of various characters and at night the rats come and nibble her feet you know it's just it's horrific but she manages to get get her way out of that but uh, I wanted to give an album that was about 
you know, what it is to be poor and what it is to want to not be poor anymore, what it is to, to try to achieve some kind of freedom from, from this curse. When you responded to the, to the, with Chintu as a song, as the book, to go with Odrift, my soul leapt with joy. Um, because Chintu is one of, is, is a novel that moved me. It's, it's a really deep, profound and powerful novel. And, um, you know, Chintu to me, it is an example of um, the, the, catastroph the catastrophic effect, the, you know, that sort of multi-generational effect of one person mm -hmm. making a decision and how it shapes a whole nation. Yeah. And there is a clear parallel there yeah. with the old drift of one person taking an action and how that shapes a nation. Yeah. And then how, you know, in the old drift, the nation constitutes of multiple people from different places. Yeah. You know, yeah. On that note, I'm going to open it to the floor. Yes. Um, does anyone? people from yeah. multiple places. <laughs> So if anyone has any question you want to ask? Um, so in addition to writing this gorgeous novel, you've also written a marvelous work of academic criticism on ambiguity. What song would you pair with that? Oh, wow. So that or, book is... Or album. Either right, way, right, right. Album. So that, that book is called Seven Modes of Uncertainty. And I'm riffing, obviously, oh, well, only obvious for nerdy literary critic people, but on William Empson's Seven Types of Ambiguity. But I, so I look at Toni Morrison's beloved, Brett Easton Ellis's American Psycho, Nabokov's uh, Lolita, yeah, Ian McEwan's Atonement. I mean, I, it's hard to say because I don't know if I would pitch the, the album or the songs to what I have to say or to the books I'm writing about, right? Because each of those books have a very different flavor, a very different feel. I think it would have to be a mixtape. <laughs> and I think, I'll just give you, like, this, oh, there would probably be some Radiohead on there, just because of the idea of uncertainty and, like, uh, maybe this, so I talk about three different structures that produce uncertainty. <laughs> I talk about when you have conflicting, conflicting explanations for the same set of events. So maybe a mashup song would be good for that, where you have two songs mashed together. And I've got multiplicity, where you have multiple perspectives on the same set of events, like in a court case. And so maybe for that, it would be like a big anthem song with lots of people singing. And then the repetition would be Radiohead. <laughs> Thanks, Marie. Um, you talked about the emotional landscape of the book and the fact that you wrote it over 20 years. Yeah. So I just want to ask about kind of the emotional effect that the book has had on you over that 20 year period and kind of vice versa, how your emotions affected your writing. Oh, that's good. That's a great question. Um, because the book was written over the course of my 20s and 30s, it's sort of like a compilation of all of those namwalis and how I've become. And so, you know, like a lot of the romance and the, the affection for or maybe even obsession with beauty is very much a young namwali aspect. I still, I still appreciate beauty and all of that, but um, I, was, I was very much into making love letters for people when I was in my 20s. I did a lot of that instead of writing. <laughs> and 
And the sense of heartbreak, I think, all of that, those very, very um, big emotions about love, I think, very much have to do with my 20s. And a lot of those parts of the novel I wrote at that time, and also parts of the novel about children, about young people. But I think the, 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 the parts of the book that some, some people call aphoristic or where like a kind of narrative figure s steps in and makes grander proclamations, that's the older Namwali who thinks she knows things, right? So it's like, there's a line where I say, um, um, every family is a war, but some families are more civil than others. And so that kind of statement is something I, I wouldn't have made as a 22-year-old, but it's something that as a, having seen what family is and how it continues to be a battle and a war for so many different people, things that I learned. And also I think a lot of the, the political stuff and the, the science fiction stuff emerged as, as a later development of my personality as a, just in the world. So I became much more interested in politics um, after graduate school or at, towards the end of graduate school and as a professor, possibly because I moved to Berkeley, California. It's, you know, the heart of, of um, progressive leftist American politics. And the science fiction stuff was a return to my early love of sci-fi when I was, you know, 10 or so. I was very obsessed with Michael Crichton and Isaac Asimov and Ray Bradbury. But I went to these fancy universities where I was reading Milton and Conrad and Toni Morrison. And so I only started to get back to that love of sci-fi as a professor because then I could teach what I wanted to read. And so I've been teaching a course on black science fiction and developing that side of my, um, my skill and understanding as a writer. Uh, came later. So I, you can see this kind of like strata of Namwali <laughs> across the years, like tree trunk or something, all the different circles. But I, I, one thing I want to say about that, though, is that I did maintain, I tried to maintain the impulses I'd had as a young person, even though the writing I, I tried to revise to make better because the writing wasn't as good back then. There was an impulse in me towards certain kinds of beauty, as I said, or even the grotesque in the magical realist sections especially, that I don't think I would write that now. But I wanted to honor that in myself as, as a 20-year-old. And so those things ended up staying. Um, and I don't know if that was the right decision, but it felt like the right decision to, to honor whatever impulse was there. Massive Hi. congratulations. <laughs> <laughs> um, I find it interesting that you've written the book across so many years and so many personalities. I'm particularly interested in finding out what is the emotion that you most resonate with within this book and why, you know, what's the trigger there? Thank you. Yeah. I'm like, how can I, how can I say this without spoiling? Okay, what I will say is, There And I, actually, this is almost a quote from one part of the novel, which is that there is a kind of rage that can exist in the middle of mourning, in the middle of sadness, and that fierceness of, of sadness, if that makes sense, uh, which sounds, it sounds depressing, but it, it is actually sublime. It's like this... It's, it's, you know, King Lear on the Heath or whatever. It's this idea that when you are mourning, part of what you're feeling is not just sadness, but it is anger. And that that anger can have political traction. It can actually lead you to revolution is something that in 
tracing the arc of several of my characters became very uh, important to me. And I, I don't think I would have been able to do that as, as a young person. I did know um, one, one little piece of that, but I didn't, it's something I've learned over time. And, um, you know, the, the, the drift means the old drift is, you know, the drift of time and the drift of error. But um, I think this crescendoing quality that we're talking about with the music, that the music of the book, I think is very much about that, the rage of sadness. Hi, um, I just want to make a comment. I, um, I think when you talked about Martha mm. as the, um, the two sides of her life, mm. as the um, laughing girl, and then as a crying woman, mm. I, um, I was quite touched by that. And then mm. I think I, li I really liked what you said, um, how interesting a, a life event can change um, a person from one kind of way to another. Yeah. But I think what was um, really touching for me um, as well was the fact that you said um, we don't have to remain stuck. Yeah. I think that was very powerful. And, um, and I think there's a kind of hope that comes with that, you know, if, yeah. if we don't, even if you've gone through lots of stages, <laughs> even if you're a grandma yes. and there's something that's been, you, you've been stuck in a situation or in a, a kind of, I don't know, uh, a dilemma or something, whatever, life event, yeah. but that there's still hope that it can change. I yeah. think that's so powerful. Thank you. Thank you. Um, so congratulations on an incredible book. Made me very proud to be Zambian. Oh, and I guess, thank you. Um, Welcome. And I guess my question is, how did you <laughs> feel about Zambia right after writing it? It's such a gift to the nation, so yeah. I, you know, I got to learn so much. We, my, my family in Zambia, we call this being movious. We move everywhere. We're just constantly nomadic and going from place to place. So I always managed to leave a country the year before you learn the history of that country. So I moved to the States and they had just learned the history of the US. So I, didn't, I don't really know the history of the US properly. And I, when I came to Zambia, they had just finished history. We were now into geography, which is much less interesting. So I just, I had to do a lot of research uh, to learn about the history of Zambia just by virtue of, of my travels as a, as, a, as a young person, as a student. And, and also when you try to take an African history course in university, it, it is very broad because Africa's got 54 countries. So it was not going to be very specific about Zambia. So learning about Nkoloso, learning about Zambian history, being in the archives, um, talking to people, interviewing people, friends of my mom and my, and my dad. And I just, I, I think discovering people like Nkoloso who really is like the spirit of of the novel for me and understanding that my 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 very weird eclectic zambianness i mean we've been playing bjork songs all night is is not unprecedented that you know, <laughs> that that there there is something about the way that i process humor the way that irony works the way that i think about cultures combining to create new things um all of that being something I was finding as I was reading about Zambia. So it, it only just made me love, love my country more. And I'm really excited that I'm going, I get to go home to launch the book in June. Yeah, it's very, very exciting. I think that's a wonderful place to end yes. this wonderful conversation. Thank you oh, so much. Thank Marley. you, Sarah. You're the best. Oh my God, you're so
That's to be expected. Namuali Paul is absolute bay, and I'm deeply inspired by the revelation that it took 20 years to bring this book to life. It just goes to show that the vision is indeed for an appointed time. Tweet your favorite part of this episode with the hashtag Books and Rhymes. This season, I will be inviting creatives, thinkers and writers to discuss the impact of books and music on their sense of self, identity and belonging. Tune in to next week's episode with the poet Soraya Barr as she takes us on a journey on how her early difficulties with reading sparked a love of this written and spoken word. We also discuss the importance of seeing yourself reflected in text, how literature fills generational gap between migrants, parents and children born in the diaspora. A playlist of the songs featured in each episode are available on booksandrhymes.com. Subscribe to the mailing list for a chance to win a signed copy of Namwali Serpel's novel, The Old Drift. Don't forget to subscribe, rate and review Books and Rhymes on iTunes and your favourite podcast listening platforms. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Hey, folks, I'm Mark Marin from the WTF Podcast, and this episode is brought to you by Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues, your ally to help tackle your allergy symptoms this season. I love the change of seasons, but nobody loves pollen and all those other things floating in the air that make you sneeze during this nice weather. Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues are hypoallergenic and allergist-approved, so fight back against watery eyes and runny noses without worrying about irritating your skin. For this allergy, Allergy season, grab Kleenex and face allergies head on. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.